Hello and welcome to A Grey Matter. I'm Rebecca Archer. For researchers to understand how the brain works and how it malfunctions in the case of diseases and injury, ideally it should be studied in a setting that's as close as possible to its natural environment. Researchers are now able to create mini-brains in a petri dish. This is something that Professor Ernst Wolvertang, who's from UQ's Australian Institute of Bioengineering and Nanotechnology and a collaborator here at the Queensland Brain Institute, has been working on. He's here today to talk more about this fascinating process. Ernst, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. I've got such a vibrant image of a row of tiny brains lined up on a counter in a lab at the moment, like something out of a science fiction film. It's truly intriguing. So how exactly do you grow these mini models of human brains? How long does it take and how big are they exactly? Well, let's start at the end. They are about the size of a lentil and we make them from human stem cells that we artificially create in a dish. And once we have made these neural stem cells, we allow them to ball up in a three-dimensional aggregate and then give them the right cues and growth factors to convince them to become a different part of the brain. And they will then grow for up to nine months in the dish. And the older they get, the more mature they get, uh, just like what happens in the womb. So you're able to create a miniature model with similar cell makeup and architecture as a developing human brain, which can mimic many aspects of early development. Tell me why that's useful to researchers. It's extremely useful because it recapitulates what happens in a developing embryo. And it's actually quite amazing that once we put the stem cells on this path to become a different part of the brain, that it becomes a self-organizing system where the, the cells start to tell each other where they need to go and what they need to do and who they need to hook up to. And it is that process that is very difficult to study in the human because you cannot get access to really early embryos and certainly not live tissue from early human embryos. So this is one of the unique ways that we can get insight into what happens really during really early brain development and where things go wrong when there's, for example, mutations in the DNA. So you're working towards solving neurological diseases by understanding the relationships between genes and neurological abnormalities. So what are some examples of how you're using organoids in your own research? So we have a a number of research streams. The first one is to understand how DNA mutations lead to rare diseases in children, neurodevelopmental diseases. One of our programs looks at what's called leukodystrophies or white matter diseases, which are diseases where the insulation around the nerves as they develop is not forming properly or is lost at a particular stage of development. And these leukodystrophies usually lead to uh, children becoming wheelchair bound and also to uh, neurodevelopmental and cognitive defects. So what we then do is, and what we have done, is to collect a small sample of the blood of these children that are affected and we reprogram them artificially in the lab to a stage when the cells become cells that are equivalent to an embryonic cell that lived in a, in a day five embryo and that it has two important advantages. One, these cells are immortal, so they will grow forever. And at the same time, they can make any cell type of the body and in this case, every cell type of the brain. So what we then have done with these leukodystrophies, we allow them to develop and they make the cell types that deposit the myelin. And what we see is that these myelin-depositing cells are not working properly in this particular disease. And then we have been screening for drugs that can overcome this because these are diseases where there's no treatment for at the moment. So that's just one example. 
But we're also researching ataxia telangiectasia, which is another incurable disease that affects children, and these children cannot repair their own DNA and suffer from neurodegeneration. And similar fashion, we've made brain organoids from these individuals, started to screen drugs, and now also start to understand why these brain cells are dying in this particular disease, which was very difficult because the mouse model, for example, doesn't show this. You really need a human-specific model system like brain organoids to get insight into that. So you touched on the medicines there. How useful is the study of brain organoids in potentially screening new and emerging medicines? I think it has enormous potential and it's really taking off, especially also in the biopharmaceutical industry who recognize the the power of this platform. So let me give you one example. In an MRFF-funded mission that we were fortunate to acquire this year, we are looking at the responses of patients that have epilepsy and in particular patients that do not respond to anti-seizure medications. Uh, So what we've done, we've made these stem cells from people that do or do not respond to anti-seizure medications, made brain organoids, and then put these brain organoids on what's called multi-electrode arrays. So these are the equivalent of doing an EEG, so putting electrodes on the outside of your skull. And most people will know that, but in this case, we put in brain organoids on the electrodes and listen in on their activity. And what we then see is that these epilepsy patients have increased abnormal activity, as you would expect, because they have seizures. Uh, But then what we do is we start to screen drugs that are personalized for these individual patients because some patients will respond to drug A but not to drug B and vice versa. And it's really important to identify these medications really early on so that you don't have to go through 10 years of diagnostic odyssey to find a medication that actually works for you. So that's a really exciting application. Uh, how you can use brain organoids to identify effective medications for individual patients. Because I would imagine that there have been instances in the past where perhaps animal modelling has been used for particular medications and it's all seemed to be fine and then when it's actually applied to a human, it hasn't had such great or in some circumstances catastrophic results in fact. Spot on and this is exactly why the biopharmaceutical industry is so interested because the attrition rate of novel drugs that are in their pipe is huge. And one of the main reasons for that is that they are mainly tested in mice or in other rodent species before they go into humans. And there have been many examples where these drugs work fine in mice, but once the clinical trial in humans starts, it either has side effects that they didn't anticipate or they are not as effective as they were in the mice. So this sort of leapfrogs that animal model and goes straight into a human system and even better, a personalized human system uh, that will allow you to identify effective drugs. What are the current limitations of these mini brains? Is there any downside to their use? Is it a particularly expensive process to grow them in a lab? It's quite an art to make them well and to make them reproducibly. But luckily, we now have a robotic system that can do that for us. But the main downside is that, firstly, they are immature. So so we're really looking for ways to make more mature cells that are more similar to the adult brain, because at the moment, they very much look like fetal developing neuronal cells. The other problem is is that they don't have a vasculature, so they don't have a blood supply. So they can only stay small because they don't get enough oxygen and nutrients. And we and the whole rest of the world is trying to figure out how we can solve that by engineering uh, vasculature in these organoids to make them bigger. Uh, So those are two of the main disadvantages, I guess. But the advantages vastly outweigh these disadvantages because you can play tricks with brain organoids you can't 
uh, play with their whole brain. For example, we can put two different parts of the brain together that we specify differently, so on different parts of the brain, and allow them to interact and then observe how these neuronal cells interact with each other and how they hook up with each other. And this is often where disease is sitting in defects in hooking up of different types of neurons. So that's the kind of uh, games you can play with organoids that you can't do with a real mouse brain or definitely not with a human brain. And in terms of the longevity, so without that blood supply, how long would you be able to, I suppose, use one of these organoids for testing or for your research? How long do they last effectively? Well, we've cultured them for up to a year, but other people have extended that up to two years. So, so you can actually keep them alive for quite a long time. And what's really remarkable is that if you look at the maturity of these neurons, that it seems to march in pace with human development in the womb. So in other words, a six-month-old brain organoid has neurons that are almost similar in makeup to a six-month-old embryo. And at nine months, they start to look like newborn neurons. So that is a really fascinating question, is is what is that clock that determines how fast it ticks? Because if we do this with mouse stem cells, it only takes 18 days. And that's exactly how long a mouse spends in the womb of its mother. So yes, and obviously, we want to actually understand that process. What is that clock so that we can accelerate it and make much more mature neurons quicker? Because at the moment, it takes quite a long time to get mature enough neurons for certain applications. And are there any ethical challenges around this type of research? Almost any research on human pluripotent stem cells has challenges. From my point of view, the main challenge is at what stage do these brain organoids have an ethical or an individual status. And let me explain that. So what we and others observe is that after about seven months of a brain organoid, these organoids start to show activity that is very similar to developing consciousness in the fetal brain. So at the moment, they are not getting any input from any senses, so they can't see or hear or feel, obviously. But it does concern us that they start to show this signature of consciousness. So we as a society, and together with bioethicists, we've already started to think about that. At what stage do you stop these experiments because of ethical reasons, and do they become an individual? It's unlikely, but I think it's important to start thinking about that. And how widespread is the use of these brain organoids in Australia and even more broadly around the world? It's taking off because it's it's such a powerful platform. In Australia, it's not widespread, but more and more labs are seeing the advantages of brain organoids as one way to get to the truth. It will remain a model, but it's a really great model. And I guess this is one of the reasons why we collaborate with researchers at the QBI, because they can also see that there is value in this type of investigation. But at the moment, I can't know exactly how many labs, but I'm guessing about 10, 12 labs in Australia are also starting to do this. But we started very early, so I think we're doing pretty well. And the real challenge is to make these organoids more and more complex. So having more and more structures in there and layers and different cell types to get more closely to what's happening in the real brain. When you say you started early, so how long ago, how long have you been personally involved in this research? We started brain organists about four or five years ago. Uh, So yeah, we've been doing this for a while and we really pioneered this reprogramming process in Australia. We were one of the first groups in Australia to make induced pluripotent stem cells, which is this time travel of bringing blood cells back to a pluripotent state, which is the obligatory first step in making brain organoids. So yeah, we've been playing in this space for quite a while. 
Is there a big failure rate when you're trying to grow a miniature brain? What we observe is that once you do it properly, about 90% of the brain organoids that you make will form proper structures. It's not 100% sure. Our main concern is infections, because you can imagine if you grow something for nine months and you're a researcher or a student that has been growing these organoids, that any infection that will wipe out nine months of your research in one stroke. So what we do is we multiplex and start multiple experiments as backups and backups to backups, which makes it expensive, but it's also necessary to as a risk mitigation strategy. Yes, that makes sense. So I'm curious about the journey that brought you into this line of work. Can you tell me a bit about the path that brought you exactly to this point? I guess I started really early, really at the start of pluripotent stem cell biology in Australia when a professor called Martin Perra brought the first embryonic stem cells from a lab in Singapore pre-9-11 still in his jacket coat and started to grow these at Monash University where I was doing a postdoc. And once that happened, I parked in front of his office and begged him for a job. Uh, and he relented eventually. And that's when I started to learn, well, the field really started to learn how to grow these cells, how to monitor them, how they would behave, how you can push them into different uh, cell types, which was all unknown at that stage. That's how it started. And then in about 2008, I came to University of Queensland and really brought the first pluripotent stem cells to our university and have been doing it ever since. And how popular is it among students and people who are wanting to go into this line of research here at the University of Queensland? Students are hugely excited about the prospect of working with pluripotent stem cells from humans. I think everybody gets it, that is, that this is a real human model. And by combining it with a novel genome editing technology that we now have and have applied to human stem cells, we can now tweak and make very precise mutations in the DNA of the stem cells before we start making brain organoids from them. So this is the first time you can really do what's called functional genomics, so so figuring out how genes behave or misbehave in a real human brain system. And that was never possible. So students are hugely excited about this, and we have many of them coming through our lab and and get hooked on seeing brain organoids and seeing brain organoids firing on multi-electrode arrays. And it still amazes me that these organoids start to develop their own activity without us telling us anything. We don't put any instructions in, but they're just what I call dreaming of these these organoids. That is just an amazing process to watch. Have you always been someone who was fascinated by the brain and by science in general? I mean, did this curiosity for you begin when you were a child? When did you really start to spark when it came to things that are associated with the human brain? I guess it started when I was doing my honours, actually, in Amsterdam, at the University of Amsterdam. I was working in a a lab in the hospital in Amsterdam Medical Centre on peroxisomal diseases, which is an organelle that handles fatty acids. And kids would come in with severe pathology, and we wouldn't know, or the clinicians wouldn't know what was going on. So cells would be harvested, and we as a team would then start to investigate what was going on. And I remember very distinctly one case where a child had this this severe lactic acidosis, and we worked the whole weekend through until we found out what the problem was. And that informed what kind of medication this child got, and it got better. And then the parents came in a couple of months later with the child and said, like, thank you so much. And at that moment, I knew I knew that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is goosebump stuff that grabs you. And then from that moment, I knew that it was going to be research and research, particularly on the brain, because that's our final frontier, our most complex organ that we still know very little about, how this 
billions of neurons interact and how they work and make us human. That's fascinating. And have you had similar instances like that again with this research, with the epilepsy research that you're doing, for example, where you've had those goosebump moments? We have, yes. Well, actually, it happens very regularly. We get very excited when we start to make predictions about how patients should be treated based on, on their cells that we're growing in the dish. And when we get it right, those are moments when everybody high-fives in the lab and go, like, we got this one right. So, yeah, those are the good moments. Fantastic. And so this might be a difficult question to answer, but what are some of the questions that still fascinate you about the brain? What really fascinates me is, is what is consciousness? We still don't know what it is and what determines consciousness. And the fact that we can see these gamma waves emerging in our brain organoids suggests that we can start to systematically investigate where these activities are coming from. And that also has very practical applications, for example, in, in finding better anesthetics. I mean, at the moment, the anesthetics we have are fantastic, but they also have side effects. So I think understanding the principles of how we make this complex system of interconnected neurons, how that leads to an emergent property like consciousness uh, is something that fascinates me. And the other question that I already touched upon is like, what is that clock? What is determining that particular species has a particular metronome in its stem cell that tells it how fast it needs to make a brain? We have really have no idea. And the final one is, is non-coding RNAs. We only usually look at 2% of our genome, which is the bit that codes for proteins that do all the work in our cells. But there are all these non-coding RNAs. This is what used to be called junk DNA. And we know that particularly those types of molecules are very highly and specifically expressed in particular cell types in the brain. And we know very little about what they are doing. And this is another hobby of us to find out what do these molecules do there and why are they also human specific? Clearly, they have something to do with our uniqueness. Seems inexhaustible, the amount of mysteries that we have around the human brain. So I don't think you'll ever run out of ideas or challenges ahead of you. I don't think we will. Uh, and you can never get bored with understanding a beautiful organ like the brain. Ernst, it's been truly fascinating hearing all about brain organoids and the work that you're involved with. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. If you'd like to learn more or support the work we do at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. You can also download a copy of The Brain magazine. I'm Rebecca Archer, and that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening.